So before I moved to Durham a year and a half ago to start school, um, I was living and working out in Colorado. And my job out there was to help run a backpacking company, which was very fun and very exciting. And sometimes very strange things happened. Um, like one week when we uh, temporarily misplaced an entire backpacking trip, so like 14 people. Um, and normally if this happened, we would just sort of wait and see if all these people showed up where they were supposed to be a few days later. Um, but we had an important message that we needed to deliver to one of their group leaders. So my job for the day was to put on my running shoes and to drive out to where we thought they might be and to scramble kind of uphill and down, um, just watching and listening and searching for these backpackers. Um, and I've done some like wandering around in the woods before in my life, but this felt really different to me because I was actually like experiencing the forest around me with the sole intention of finding these people. So I felt attentive to the world in a way that I rarely am. I think like if someone had been watching me, I would have looked crazy because everything I heard, I was like, is that them? Um, or I kept on thinking that I saw them in, then it would just be like a leaf or a rock covered in moss. Um, and I never did actually find them. And they did end up showing up the next day in a very different place than we thought they would. Um, but I remember it was, it was dusk. It was almost dark when I got back to my car that day. And um, I took off my shoes. And I remember noticing that my feet were especially, um, like, beat up. They were muddy with, like, good Colorado red mud. And they were scraped up and they were tired. Um, and I remember at that moment actually thinking of this verse from Isaiah 52, which has come to mean a lot to me since then. And this verse says, how beautiful on the mountainside are the feet of those who bring good news. And at first, to be honest, I just appreciated the irony that any feet that were on a mountainside for any duration of time would end up being not very beautiful feet. But then I started kind of imagining my way into the mindset of the people who would have been hearing this word from the prophet Isaiah. This was a people who were desperate for good news, a people longing to hear that the Lord had comforted his people and redeemed Jerusalem and that he was coming back to Zion. To those people, those people longing for a word of hope, the bruised and the bloodied feet of any messenger who carried that hope uphill and down all the way to their doorstep would have looked really beautiful. So the, the good news that those feet carried are actually what made them beautiful. So our framework for today is to think about and to ask the question together, what does it mean for us to be a people 
who are actually made beautiful by the good news that we carry? And then what does it mean to be the messengers of a gospel that is beautiful? So before we ask those questions, I want to think first about how we are defining beauty. And um, yeah, this is something really important. Meg and I were actually talking earlier this week about how, um, especially as women and men, I know that this is also true for you. We hear oftentimes one narrative about beauty that is based in a culture that is only trying to glorify itself. So we're told that we have to conform to this vision that says that beauty is one thing and that you're going to be judged on your compliance with this vision by um, the gaze and the opinion of everybody else. There's a massive industry built around this idea. It's the vision that aging is wrong, that bodies should all look the same, and that Suffering and beauty are only tied together um, as much as it is a little bit painful to get a pedicure. This is a tyrannical definition of beauty. It condemns us. It holds us under its thumb, and it takes our identity from us instead of becoming our freedom, instead of like setting us loose to flourish into the fullness of our humanity. This definition of beauty isn't good news. But just one chapter later in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, the prophet describes the coming Messiah as being completely outside of that oppressive vision of beauty and says he had no form or majesty that we should look to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. So then, Christ's life is the actual foundation for a different type of beauty. Christ's life is a a paradox that is so breathtaking, it actually breaks the system. And the cross is beautiful in a different way. It's beautiful in the way like the saddest song in the world can seep under your skin and become a part of you. And Christ's beauty doesn't ignore death or try and cover up death with anti-aging cream. Instead, Christ gives himself to death so that we can be free. The resurrection is beautiful because death is defeated. Christ defeats death by death. This is, um, this is the, the Philippians 2 logic. It's a logic that defies the world because it's actually a logic of sacrifice. Christ emptied himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. Um, Makoto Fujimura, who's a really incredible Christian artist, notes that the Japanese word for beauty is made up of two ideograms, great and sheep. Great sheep. Christ sacrificed Christ as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world is the foundation for an alternative vision of beauty 
that we get to reflect to the world and to our neighborhood when we live into that story. This is the alternative logic that Chris was talking about last week when he said, when we're living in the gospel, our lives won't make a lot of sense except through that gospel. We've sort of, we've switched economies. We've switched from seeing a beautiful life, not as like a safe, anemic niceness, but rather a life in which we do not lose heart because although outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So this is the logic of beauty that Paul and Silas live out in Acts 16. In this story, Paul and Silas are the messengers on the mountain. They're they're carrying this precious beyond measure news of Christ's resurrection. And this truth that they're holding, it actually starts to shape them. It wells up, spills over inside of them and transforms them until they become these people who make sacrificial great sheep choices. Paul and Silas, as bearers of something beautiful, they attend to their lives lived in the gospel, a little bit like an artist attends to his or her work. Um, And I really like the word attend here because it's the best way I know how to say the sort of action that a messenger of something beautiful does. Um, There are a lot of people in our family at Oak that know something about being an artist or having a craft, about attending to your work, sort of paying attention, listening, crafting, imagining, and then carrying that beautiful thing out into the world. And I think it's telling that the first thing Paul and Silas do as these sort of like gospel artists is they find themselves in prison. I think this is exactly the type of place that someone attending to the beauty of the gospel might find himself or herself. Because a prison is a place where the powers of the world, where the powers of domination, they seem to have the upper hand. A prison is a place where Jesus' death on a cross and where suffering seem to be the end of the story. And Paul and Silas, in carrying and bearing this message that proclaims otherwise, they threaten those powers of the world. This is what we see when they cast this spirit out from the slave woman, and it it threatens the powers that be. They are beaten, they are hidden away, and they are presumably silenced. But I think that Paul and Silas already know that it's on the mountainside. It's in like the brambles and the rocks and the long loneliness of uphill and down that beauty is actually cultivated. In fact, it's kind of crazy to me how many times Paul's preaching of the gospel lands him in prison. Because attending to a great work of beauty means being the type of person who is exactly where the suffering is where the principalities and the powers are and where the light seems to be completely shut out. 
Um, I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose prayer we sang um, first thing this morning, who was a German thinker who resisted the Nazi regime and then was executed in a concentration camp. Or I think of Dr. King Jr., who wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail to urge clergymen to put aside complacency and join the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest that landed him in that very cell. And I'll admit, this is hard for me to remember. Um, it's hard for me to remember that we don't need to be afraid to not make sense to the world. So even when we are seen as threatening, even when we are silenced, the way for light to get into a dark place is to show up there. But what I love is that for Paul and Silas, showing up is just the beginning. They don't just like grit their teeth and cling silently to their own personal narrative of hope. What they do is very strange. They start to pray and to sing hymns. And the text says it was midnight and that the other prisoners were listening to them. And I like to kind of imagine what the other prisoners were thinking. Um, maybe that singing sounded sweet to them, or maybe it sounded just really sad, or maybe Silas was a little tone deaf, like I am, and all those other prisoners in there just wanted to sleep, and they thought Paul and Silas were crazy. Because what could be more strange than a hymn from a prison cell? And what could be more contrary to darkness than a melody? This, in my mind, is actually the epitome of what I understand to be real beauty. It's a moment of excess, of overflow, that defies the logic that's in that moment itself, the form, the content, the medium, all of those things add up to something more than they are together. A, a song from a prison cell can take in all of the sadness and the brokenness of the world and then send it forth again in melody and somehow in that action saturate it with hope. I think that in this story, in Acts 16, this is kind of the first act of the performance of gospel beauty that Paul and Silas are bearing to those around them, showing everybody who's watching. And what is amazing about this is that there's really nobody who can uh, just step up on stage and make this sort of incredible performance. I think Paul and Silas have actually been preparing for this moment for a long time before it came. Just uh, like a dancer will work for months just to get a certain move just right. Or a painter who has to prepare for his or her whole lifetime to be able to paint one piece. Paul and Silas have made worship and prayer their discipline, kind of their, their daily exercises, their scales, so that when the moment comes, that's what they have to fall back on. They can't help but continue forward in this habit that they've already formed. So this is part of what attending to the gospel that we carry might mean. I, 
love that the word attending has inside of it the word tending because any art or craft, I think, relies on this sort of daily careful practice and rehearsal on consistently showing up to a space and putting in the hours that build technique so well and so strongly that it becomes sort of second nature, almost forgotten. When Paul writes to the Philippians, again from prison, he tells them, rejoice, rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. This this is what we do when we meet together week in and week out and we sing and we remember the story of redemption and we pray together. We're we're sort of playing the scales. We're teaching each other how to rejoice because attending well to something so beautiful as the gospel means tending to these sort of daily practices of joy. And these, these disciplines of worship and prayer, I think, can become so deeply ingrained in us that at midnight, when we are suffering and when those around us are looking to us for an answer, all we know how to do is sing. Um, this week in our staff meeting, I got to hear Jeff talk about what it is like to produce music. Really interesting stuff. And as he was speaking, I was mostly impressed with how well he knew what he was doing. He knows how to, man, he knows how to cultivate habits and relationships and intuitions, how to have sort of all the pieces ready so that um, when, when something that is stunning and unpredictable happens in the room, there's already a space for it. He says that there's certain ways to help even something so ephemeral as beauty to arrive. There are practical things like, he says, never do vocals in the morning. Um, make sure everybody's really comfortable. I think too often I, th- I think that I own the gospel um, or that I have to somehow make it arrive somewhere. But the, the gospel, the, the good news of God's love is alive. And God is already at work, and we can't ever make other people see beauty. But what we can do is help each other practice our identity as a people who sing. So that when the moment comes for us to choose that sort of foolishness that's going to sing at midnight, that's already our identity. That's already who we are. So there are Paul and Silas, these strange singing birds in a dark cell. And all at once, there is a violent earthquake. And the doors fly open, and now is their chance. And I know that if I was there and my chains popped off, I'd be gone. See ya. But they don't flee. Instead, they do something else that doesn't make any sense. They stay. And in fact, they don't just stay, but they call out to the jailer to assure him and to prevent him from harming himself. Rowan Williams writes about Catholic author Flannery O'Connor talking about what makes a story work. He says that it's because of the unexpected, of an action that is both in character and then beyond character that reveals participation in God's 
grace and excess. So it's this moment of grace that both fits and really doesn't fit. And I think that's what our new sort of gospel lenses for the world allow us to see. It's moments that grace can come in and fill beyond our expectations if we're willing to stay, if we can choose to love our enemy, and if we attend to the opportunity. One commentator says that Paul and Silas don't need to move. They don't need to flee in this moment because they are already free. They were never truly bound, so they don't need to grasp for their own safety. Rather, they can stay. Um, and this is a weird phrase. Uh, I had this theater director in college that talked about uh, catching beauty like it was a baseball, sort of like warring at your head. And he would always stay, he would say, you need to stay loose need. Um, so Paul and Silas are staying loose need and ready to catch whatever opportunity is at hand. When God brings an earthquake, it's not so that they can escape, but instead so that they can be revealed as already free and already living outside of a logic of fear. And what I think is really wild here is that none of the other prisoners run away either. Paul and Silas call out, hey, we're all here. And again, I wonder what it would be like to have been there. Um, in my mind, I'm imagining one guy who was in the back and just trying to like sneak out the back when they call that out. And he's like, oh, come on, man. Like, how's my chance? But maybe they are actually so amazed at the courage that it takes for these men to willingly save the life of their captor that all of them are just glued to the floor watching. I think this brings up another virtue that's connected to attending to something beautiful, courage. We've kind of been talking about this the whole time, but I think to participate in a work to which you bring all of yourself and then you step back and step out of control, that's pretty terrifying. And to be a person of what David Hart calls this sort of strange, impractical, altogether unworldly tenderness is to actually open oneself up to deep vulnerability. Paul and Silas don't know that they're going to be okay. But for them to attend well to the beauty of the gospel is to be willing to actually stake their lives on it. Um, I bet a lot of you had to read um, George Orwell's 1984 at some point in high school, most likely. Um, I actually haven't read it since then, so if I get this reference wrong, um, tell me afterwards. But the main characters in that story, their names are Winston and Julia, and they are in all sorts of trouble because they oppose Big Brother, which is sort of this giant dystopian government. And Orwell, the author, keeps saying that Winston and Julia were so certain that they were going to die that they thought of themselves as already dead. 
And from that, they were able to be incredibly courageous because they had nothing left to lose. So they kind of, the story is that they take on the whole world. And it's stuck with me ever since high school that if Winston and Julia can be so courageous because they are already dead, how much more courageous can we be who have already been declared alive? We are already saved, already sustained, already and always loved. And this love, this perfect love, drives out our fear. This love animates us. It compels us. It actually constrains us like canyon walls constrain and compel a river forward. This is the love that actually wraps its arms around the prison guard when Paul and Silas call out to him. And this is the love that actually lights up that room when he turns the light on and asks them, what must I do to be saved? I think this is the the last act in this story, the last performance of something beautiful. Beauty has to be shared. Beauty seeks to be communicated. It searches to be known, heard, seen, touched, experienced. Beauty calls us into itself, and it calls to the beholder to participate in it. How beautiful on the mountainside are the feet of those who bring good news. It's not the feet of those who hold good news or the feet of those who hide good news, but those who recognize that good news by its very goodness is made to be shared. There's a Neff family story, which I called my mom to confirm, and she doesn't remember in which one of my incredible siblings accepted Jesus into her heart at a very young age, but then announced to my parents uh, that she didn't want anyone else to know Jesus because then Jesus would be less her friend, Um, which is funny to think about. Um, But I actually think that I, I do this all the time. When I start to think that the, the beauty that I carry, that any joy that I have in my life is my own and that it's not a gift that can only multiply with its giving. I, I think that part of being an artist is to bear something beautiful into the world and then to have to let go of it, to let it take on a life that is beyond your life. And the gospel as the foundation for beauty is especially this way. It's always self-giving because it's actually founded on the love of a God whose self-love overflowed so much that this God made something that was not God so that God could love that thing. And then he let those creatures be free. Nobody has to be tricked into the gospel because it is so deeply true and so truly lovely and altogether good news. So Paul and Silas share. 
they tell this guard that to be saved, he must believe in the Lord Jesus. And then they tell his family, and then they baptize all of them, and they eat together. They break bread. And the sacrifice of Jesus becomes the way for this entire new household to participate, to share in the life of life. And to this family, the bruised, tired bodies of Paul and Silas are so beautiful because they carry this life-giving word of another body that was broken and bruised for love. Anna Carter Florence says that testimony, which I think of as like the deep-throated, courageous expression of whatever we've seen and heard and received because of Jesus. Testimony doesn't just sound weird. It actually, it actually is weird. I love this quote. She says, if testimony were your date for the night, it would be everything your mother warned you about. Because testimony, which is this work of carrying good news across a mountain or attending to the beauty of Christ's sacrifice, is so deeply contrary to the powers of the world, to the narratives that we hear about our own identity. But in that contrariness, we find what makes it good news and what makes our feet strangely beautiful even as they become dirty and scraped up and weary. It's this contrariness, this beauty born from suffering that makes others drawn to our joy, like this sweet contradiction of a song heard coming out of a prison cell. Um, Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much that you are beautiful to behold. Thank you that you, um, that you overflow, that you exceed the capacity that we have to understand you. Thank you that your, that your logic is something else that makes us more free instead of less free. Thank you that your your news is really good news. Thank you also for this place and these people and this morning and the work that you're already calling us to attend to. Be with us now as we continue to worship. Amen.